Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 238. Happy Chanukah, Afrelech and Chanukah. This is the first night of Chanukah of this year, Tov Shinai and Tess, 5779. And let's begin with a most powerful statement from the Ramban, Nachmanides, in the beginning of the chapter, Baalesh Chesaneris, where it talks about the kindling and the raising of the flames in the times of the temple, starting in the biblical temple, which was the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary that they traveled with for 40 years, and then later the permanent Besamikdash, which continued the tradition and the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. So the Ramban writes that the menorah in the temple, which is what we, of course, consecrate and dedicate when the mitzvah, the miracle of Hanukkah happened, the oil was defiled in that menorah, and when they found that crucible of oil, one small cruise of oil that was pure, with a pure and untouched seal, and that lasted, even though it only was amount of enough oil to burn for one night, it lasted for eight, that becomes the Hanukkah. So the Ramban writes, the menorah itself, the original menorah in the temple, ultimately, even though it says near Tomit, it was a permanent flame, ultimately was extinguished. It was extinguished with the destruction of the first temple and afterwards the destruction of the second temple. And until the third temple with the coming of Mashiach in the future, in the Geula of the future, we do not have that menorah. But Haneris Halolu, these flames, the flames of Hanukkah, Einem B'Telem Leilam, will never be extinguished or never extinguished throughout the arduous and difficult exile with all the trials and tribulations, with all the expulsions and murders and genocides, the flames of Hanukkah continue to burn even in the darkest times. Which really raises a tremendous question. Usually, when something commemorates a... When something commemorates another thing, the first original thing is always more powerful than, thing you, than, the, than the thing you're commemorating is always more powerful than that which is doing the commemorating. And here we have Hanukkah, which, as I said, when they defiled the temple and they desecrated the temple, so the menorah, they could not find oil to kindle the menorah. And until they found that crucible of oil, which was one miracle, and the second miracle, was that, although the oil was only enough to last naturally for one day, it burned for eight, that's the rededication of the temple and the rededication of the altar and the rededication of the menorah, which symbolizes why my Hanukkah, as the Talmud says, what is Hanukkah? And yet, that original menorah ultimately will be extinguished after the destruction of the second temple by the Romans. And the Hanukkah menorah would never be extinguished. And we continue to light it every year during this time of the year. On the 25th of Kislev we begin, and for eight days we light the menorah. So how do we explain that? And the answer lies with a few other questions. The menorah in the temple was only seven branches. The Hanukkah menorah is eight. The menorah in the temple was lit, different opinions, but it was lit in the morning. We light the Hanukkah menorah in the evening, at dusk, when the sun is setting. The menorah in the temple was lit indoors, inside the temple. The, lit, the menorah of the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah menorah is lit al Pesach Beisim Ibachutz, the door of the house facing outwards, out to the street. So in so many ways, the Hanukkah menorah, even though it's commemorating the menorah in the temple, 
is so different. So how do we explain this? So Chassidus explains it this way. This being Chassidus applied, we will use Chassidus and applying it also to our personal lives. Tremendous insight in what Hanukkah is. The menorah in the temple was the power of light, divine light. As the Talmud says, that God does not need light. That's why the windows in the temple were facing, were narrow on the inside, and wide on the outside. It's usually the other way. You want to bring the light in, you make it narrow on the outside and wide on the inside. Why? Because the temple did not need light. The light of the menorah is meant to illuminate the entire world with divine illumination, with divine light and energy. So it represents the holiness of divine revelation in this world. We live in a world that needs constant energy and light, and that's what the menorah is, and the seven branches reflect the cycle of seven, seven days of the week, the seven different attributes, divine attributes, the seven different types of souls that exist, and so on. Hanukkah did something completely different. Here suddenly the menorah was compromised, it was challenged, to the point that they could not find oil to light the menorah, which, as I said, was burning all the time as the te- when the temple stood. The Hanukkah miracle, miracle demonstrated that even when there's utter darkness and the light is extinguished, you still can illuminate. And thus, in all ways, the Hanukkah menorah has a certain strength that the original menorah did not have. Because it's one thing when you're, when you're in a good mood, you're in a good state of mind, your life is going well, and everything is blessed in your life. So of course you give off light. But we all know we go through times in life when there is a down, when we're not experiencing success, where we may feel down and out and not feeling revealed blessings. That's when a person is truly tested. What Hanukkah teaches is that we dig deeper and we find even then a pure cruise of oil and that burns that's why the Hanukkah menorah in all ways demonstrates that both in its number. Let's start. Seven is the natural cycle of the week. Eight is the number of transcendence. As the Rajbah writes, that seven is the cycle and eight protects the cycle. It's like the transcendent energy, the number eight. Because now we're not looking just for regular light. We need a light that transforms darkness. When do we light the menorah? The time of, the pl- the time of lighting of the menorah is not in the morning. It's not just about bringing light into the world. It's about transforming darkness, illuminating darkness. So you light it when it starts getting dark. Meshetishka, chama, as the sun sets. And the world, both physically and spiritually and emotionally and psychologically, is in a darker state. And Hanukkah demonstrates that we pierce that darkness. So there's the number of the flames. And now we talked about the time and now the space. Where do we light it? We don't light it inside. We light it again facing outside. Chutz. Chutz means the outskirts, the outward. Because we, again, our goal is with Hanukkah is to demonstrate the light permeates the hostile outside world that's outside our door, outside our homes. It's one thing to illuminate a beautiful home. Another is to illuminate even a world that may be mundane, corrupt, and antithetical to spiritual light. And that's one meaning of the Ramban, because a light that pierces darkness, darkness cannot extinguish. The temple, as powerful as it was, it was a light from above. So the corruption, 
the, the injustices, man's injustice in, in crimes can extinguish it until the day will come when the world will be refined again. But Hanukkah, the whole Hanukkah light is coming out of the darkness. And a light that comes out of darkness, how can darkness defeat? It originated from the darkness and you found strength from within the darkness. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And hence Hanukkah has that message that is permanent and forever. There's a law, which also is that you find a constitutional law. If someone challenges a contract, let's say you have a contract with someone, an agreement, and someone challenges it, they appeal in court or they challenge it, and it's upheld after an appeal. So the law is, the Torah law, and as well as I say constitutional law, it may go through several appeals, that at some point, once it's upheld, it's stronger than the original contract. Why? Because the original contract can still always be challenged. But once you challenged it and it was upheld, it means that it could survive even the challenge, then it gets a new type of strength that forever it lasts. And that's the message of Hanukkah. And it's such a tremendous message in life, especially in all forms of healing, psychological, emotional healing, where the big question is, am I damaged goods? Is it too late for me? Am I in a situation where once I went through a darkness, you know, I may be able to survive, but I'll not be able to thrive. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. Everyone deals with this at some point in life. Comes Hanukkah and says, no, you have a deeper light inside of you, which you can access specifically when it's dark. And when you do, you reach a state that then when it illuminates, nothing can ever extinguish it. Because you've gone through fire. You've gone through darkness and you've survived. You've endured. That resilience is a new resilience. And we see this with people. Think about yourself or others who may have gone through a difficult situation. And they come out, they don't just come out as strong, they come out stronger. In the classic words of the biblical expression when the Jews were under the bondage of the genocidal Egyptians, it says, as they were oppressed, in direct proportion to their oppression, they thrived and they flourished. Or another expression is, as when you press an oil, that's when it produces, I'm sorry, when you press an olive, that's when it produces oil. Using the analogy from Hanukkah, which is olive oil. Though we can light with different fuels as well, but olive oil is the Shem and is what was used in the temple as well. So what's an olive? An olive has oil within it. You really want to get the oil out, you need to press the olive. And pressure is what brings out the best in us. So of course we should all be blessed. We should not have to face any darkness. But it's inevitable in a world like ours, in a hostile world, in a difficult world, that we will go through our challenges. Hanukkah teaches, number one, that you have inner strength beyond you can even imagine. You have an inner cruise of oil in your soul that's waiting to be freed and discovered and released. And number two, that power can pierce and is more powerful than any darkness. So even though initially it may seem the darkness has extinguished the light, but once that light is accessed, that will never be extinguished. And we see in history, for thousands of years, the Hanukkah lights shined. And even in the most difficult times, even when times it was hard to do, nevertheless, we prevailed. And that's an unbelievable lesson in Hanukkah for each one of us in any circumstance, even in the best of circumstances, to know that power, 
the power of eternity. Which leads me to the question that, of course, is asked around this. What does Chassidus teach us about darkness and its illumination? Well, I just gave you the gist of it, but I want to elaborate a bit more on that. What is darkness exactly? So you have in science and you have different theories on the nature of darkness. Is it the absence of light? Does it have substance of its own? Because you see some an interesting phenomenon based on a verse in Kehelas in Ecclesiastes that says, I've seen I've seen the advantage, the strength of wisdom over folly like the strength of light over darkness. Explains the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, chapter 12. When you look at light and darkness, light and dark, you see something interesting. Fire and water are equal adversarial forces. Enough fire can can evaporate large bodies of water. Enough water can extinguish great fires. What about light and dark? Are they equal counter forces? No. Darkness, as soon as there's even a little flame, even in the darkest room, in the largest room, and that area where the flame shines, ma'at there, a little light, dispels a lot of darkness. And without any effort. Doesn't fight, and so on. You may need a lot of light to dispel a lot of darkness, but where darkness and light meet, you're not dealing with a fire-water confrontation. You're dealing with light automatically and naturally dispelling darkness. So the lesson in that, of course, is that our light is more powerful than our darkness. Darkness, whether it's in the form of absence of light or absence or ignorance as absence of intelligence, is no match for light, the light of wisdom. Uh, why then do you see that foolish people and uh, can dominate? Because when there's an absence, when you're not shining the light, what do you think is going to dominate? The default state. So in Hasidic thought, there's a tremendous amount of literature that talks about the nature of darkness from the beginning when it says in the world God created the universe, heaven and earth, and it says in the beginning, darkness covered all of the world. And Cheshach covered the entire existence. And the Spirit of God hovered over it. Then it says the next verse, and God said, let there be light. The class, the famous line, let there be light. What are we taught? What do we learn from this? That the universe, its mere existence, is really basked in darkness. Let's even speak on a scientific level. Some of the great breakthroughs, the newest breakthroughs, in the, in the recent decade or two about in science has been how much black matter or black energy exists in the universe. That basically the majority of existence is black matter, meaning that it's dark. In Kabbalistic terminology, the entire existence is predicated on the fact that God concealed his presence, which we call the Tzimtzum Harishan. The first and great Tzimtzum Concealment, to utter concealment. And then a little ray of light shines into existence. So existence, to be able to exist and be an independent consciousness from divine reality, which is true reality, requires concealment. Just as if a teacher is a brilliant teacher is just spouting and just expanding himself and expressing himself in full, there'd be no room for the student, they'd be overwhelmed. All education, all upbringing, all training requires, yes, a flow, but a flow that is governed and, and guided by a 
tzimtzum, by some form of concealment that allows the flow to reach us, to be spoon-fed to the recipient. And as our containers expand, we then can also assimilate more and greater light. So existence, Hasidic thought explains, begins in a state of darkness. Just like we as children, we grow, we're born, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the education. Even though in our DNA is embedded the entire Torah, as the Talmud says, but it's consci- consciously we've been made to forget, so we need to study, we need to be taught, we need to learn from by example, by parents, educators, adults, and so on. But then the light begins to shine within us and we start discovering that we have a higher purpose in life. That light is really more powerful than the darkness. The darkness is just the default state. And that light then has the natural superiority to dispel any form of darkness. Intelligence naturally dispels ignorance. When is ignorance power powerful? When you don't allow the intelligence in or you don't access that intelligence. The same with darkness and light. So when you speak about it on that level, especially in some of the Hasidic discourses of the Rebbe Rashab, which go in depth into the whole nature of light and darkness, which comes first? First was darkness, and then came light. Even though the intention is there should be brightness, but it begins darkness, not because it's dark, because you need the, you need the light to come and to be tailored and channeled and harnessed into a structure like ours, and if the light would just shine in full glory, unhindered and unfettered, we would never emerge. Just the same example I gave before, another example. If you did not let your child independently explore, with your support, knowing that you're there to help them, but not allowing them to learn from their own mistakes, to learn how to walk on their own, you will never allow, they'll never get, gain independence. So the light needs to be concealed. And as he explains in some of his powerful discourses, namely his great magnum opus called Hemshech Hayim Beis, that in the highest levels of light, there's embedded the purpose that will ultimately have to go through some form of tzimtzum concealment in order to reach the recipient. And in the higher le- highest levels of darkness and concealment is embedded the purpose that, it ha- will, that the goal is to be revealed. So it's a fascinating duality that really is actually a unity of darkness and light playing against each other. And that's why the Bible says, the Torah says in the beginning, a day, a day consists of night and day. There was evening and there was morning. There was one day. The unity, the unity of the day consists of 24 hours dark and light because they have two halves of one coin. They're two parts of one reality, a cycle. The cycle of life which goes through darkness and light. When you're in darkness, however, you don't feel it. When you're light, you don't feel the darkness. But in truth, they're both leading to each other. They're both meant to work with each other. And in the more dramatic form it takes is when we actually experience a darkness, like I described before with Hanukkah. So the physics of Hanukkah, the dynamics of Hanukkah, really are rooted in the dynamics of light and dark and the interplay between the two and how they each actually support the other. And it's for us to be wise enough and recognize that, that the darkness we may go through is really its purpose, is Bishfil Hagili, in order for there to be a revelation. And even the revelation, its purpose is to be absorbed and integrated, which requires a form of darkness and night. And they both work hand in hand. And, and in the way that they continue to both grow as they join each other, as you grow to greater levels of light, 
and sometimes greater levels of concealment in order to be able to achieve even a greater dimension of light, as I discussed earlier. So you see here that there's Hanukkah is more than just a holiday that remembers the rededication of the temple and of the menorah back in the time of the second temple, but it also is a story of our personal lives being relived every year on Hanukkah. By Yom Emehem B'zman in those days, as today as in those days. And as the miracles happened then, miracles happen today, as we say in the prayers, that then the few vanquish the many, and the, and the, the righteous vanquish the enemies, the, 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 the wicked ones. And that demonstrates also the power of quality, the power of quality of light over darkness. It's not about numbers, it's not about size, it's about the power of quality. That when you access that, even if you're weaker, chazakim biyad chaloshim and rabim biyad ma'atim, which means the strong were vanquished and won and conquered by the weak, and the many were conquered by the few, because it's the quality of the light of the few and the quality of the light of the physically weak but the spiritually strong that was able to dominate and ultimately prevail. And we are here today to tell the story. So the lessons are many, many. Just to connect one point, since it's also this week is Parshami Kate's. This year, Hanukkah is usually either the chapter of Vayeshev or Miketz. This year it's Miketz until leading into next Sunday, the next week, but mostly Miketz. So Miketz is exactly the same story. What is the story of Miketz? Miketz ends last week's chapter and J. Joseph is thrown into prison. And he literally becomes, there is almost a hopeless situation. We does not realize how he will ever get out of this dark place. And yet, what happens Pharaoh dreams. And though the Sar Hamashkim, the minister of drink, promised Joseph that he would remember him, he had forgot. But then when Pharaoh had the dreams and needed interpretation, that's when they remembered Joseph. And what happens? From the depths of the prison, from being a slave, Joseph becomes Mishnah Lamelech, the second in command. Never to, to teach us that we should never give up hope. There's never a situation of hopelessness or darkness to the point there cannot be light. Not only light, Joseph ends up becoming the viceroy, ends up saving and creating Egypt, becoming a superpower and saving them after the famine, during the famine. And then ultimately actually saving and preserving his own family when they come, when first the brothers come down and then ultimately Jacob and Joseph becomes the one, Hamashbir becomes the one that nourishes and sustains Jacob and, and his own brothers and family. Despite the darkness, everything he went through including being sold into slavery by his own brothers, it's literally the story of Hanukkah, the story that darkness never has more power than light. But you need to hold on. You need to see it through. Okay. With that, let us go to a few questions. And they are, we will begin. First, let me make some, uh, let me make some announcements here. I want to first give you some cross-references, as I always do, being that we're already in the 238th episode so that's a crucial cross-referencing. The topic of Hanukkah and Miketz I've discussed in episodes 47 and 48, 93, 143, 192, and 193. You can find these previous episodes, the archives, at meaningfullife.com slash mylife. You'll also find there the forum where you can submit any question anonymously, completely confidentially. We have no idea who it is. If you want us to respond to you, we do need your email address, so please include that. They could also access there all the essays 
four years of essays. We'll soon be announcing the new essay contest for this year. And wonderful essays written, hundreds and hundreds of essays by people from all over the world, applying chassidus to our lives. I will also make mention that um, the episodes, the archives, are time-stamped. But you can see them only when you go to the YouTube version of the video. It's all broadcast on YouTube, but it's embedded on our site and many of the websites. If you want, you go to the YouTube, and there, in the description, they're all time-stamped, which means you can literally click on the topic that you're interested in, and it takes you straight to that minute and second where it's being discussed. And, uh, and finally, I want to add that especially Hanukkah, Hanukkah guilt is a custom to share, to be charitable, and to be kind. This program is community-sponsored, uh, so we depend on your graciousness. This comes to the end of the year. I really request all of you from my deepest parts of my heart because in order to continue this program and expand it and other programs, we really depend on your support. So please consider dedicating a program or a series of programs in the honor or memory of a loved one. You can do that easily by going to MeaningfulLife.com sponsorship and uh, fill out the details there. Okay. What does Chassidus teach us about darkness and its illumination is cross-referencing episodes 40, 48, 194 through 196. Okay. Now, let's go to some questions, which they're always related, but these are questions that have been coming in. And as I said, I'm somewhat backed up not due to me, it's simply to the flow of questions. There are so many, but we're catching up, and I want to assure you again, anyone who's asked a question, I know some of you have written more than once, and saying, will, will your question be answered? I assure you that, please God, it will be answered in the order it was received, not always exactly in that order, because sometimes I bunch questions together of the same topic, but they will be answered. I was, today I was looking at a bunch of the questions, and they're really great questions, and so please keep them coming. They enrich myself and enrich everybody else listening to this program. So, with that, here's a question. Monarchy and religious theocracy versus republicanism and democracy. Is Judaism democratic? What is the Torah view on forced observance? Esteemed Mashpia and the virtual galaxy Rabbi Jacobson. <laughs> this seems to always be the same guy writing this, or woman, I'm not sure who, but... You always bring a smile to my face, so thank you for that. I have a question about Torah's view on monarchy and religious theocracy versus republicanism and democracy as it relates to Torah and mitzvah observance. More specifically, what is the Torah view about the benefits or downsides of forced observance? We have been taught that King Chaskio instituted religious reform and as, result, and as a result of his edicts, his generation was very well educated. According to the Medrash, he placed a sword by the entrance to the study hall and announced that who, who, whoever didn't study would be pierced with a sword. As a result, even young children were well-versed in the complex laws of purity. In our generation, we are aware that morality dictates governments allowing personal responsibility and free choice. And it is specifically such freedom that allows one to be truly moral. If, for example, one doesn't cheat on his wife because his father-in-law is a mafia boss who will kill him if he cheats, it's no real moral test for him to remain faithful. However, if one's good behavior is despite true freedom of choice, then he, she, he or she is to be considered truly moral. Thus, in countries, societies, and communities with less freedom, people's behavior is less indicative of personal mora- morality 
in countries, societies, and communities with free speech, freedom of expression, and so on, a person's character can shine through. So what is the Torah's view about the benefit or downsides of forced observance? Was King Chizkiyo right to force religious observance? Is a democratic republic or constitutional democracy such as the USA the ultimate governing system for Torah and mitzvahs observance? Very good question. And um, I did discuss it a little in the context of the Alter Rebbe's opposition to France winning the war over Russia, which would have offered freedoms to the Jews, but spiritually would have been a great challenge. Whereas Alexander did not offer physical freedoms and it was much more difficult materially, but spiritually they continued to thrive. So I discussed this in episodes 38 and 138, but I'm going to talk about this directly. Let's talk about the, we'll talk, we'll, let's discuss the Talmud, which actually connected to Purim. And you say, we're in Hanukkah, what does Hanukkah have to do with Purim? First of all, Hanukkah and Purim are connected. In Kabbalah, Hanukkah and Purim are Netzach and Hoid. And we don't really know which one's Netzach, which one's Hoid, as the Rebbe explains in a number of places, including a Sikh of Zeis Hanukkah, Tovshin, Lamed Hay, and other times, and it's already, I think, been included in some of the edited Sikhs, that that shows the intricate connection between Hanukkah and Purim. And we see it actually in the Rambam. Though we don't know whether the Rambam was a Kabbalist, some say he knew Kabbalah, but it was secret, some say he found out at the end of his life, some say he didn't know, but you'll see, look in the Mishnah Torah, the Yad HaChazak of the Rambam, Hilchus Hanukkah Purim. Hilchus Purim Hanukkah. Hilchus Megillah Hanukkah. They come together as one. A continuation of chapters. Even though they're very different laws. So there's a connection between Purim and Hanukkah. So what's the story in the Talmud and Shabbos? It says, on the Pesach, on the verse, it says, Kimu v'kibla Yehudim, that the Jews, Kimu, they, preserved, they, they uh, sustained, and Kibla received, what is the Kimu v'kibla? They ratified that which they already received. What did they receive? By Matan Torah, they received the Torah. But then there was still Medor Rabbala Rais. It was possible to still have a complaint to God. Why? Because you forced it upon us to a certain extent. It says God took the mountain, He placed the mountain over them like a canopy, and in a way threatened them. So this explains it wasn't a threat, it was the concept of great love, but still somewhat compelled them. Yes, they did at their own volition say Nasa Vanishma, but still there was an opening that they didn't completely receive it on their own. Comes Purim, and they had the Xeris, the decrees, and they still withstood the challenges and with Messiris Nefesh all year round, as the Alter Rebbe writes in Torah Er. So they had this complete self sacrifice, so it says, Kimu Vikilbu, now they sustain it was the conclusion of Matan Torah, because now it was completely done by will. So we see here clearly. That Joe Judaism clearly states that the blueprint for existence is the Torah. And his guidelines are not optional. This is what you're supposed to do, and this will make your life better, and this will make your life, this, this will be productive and constructive, make your, your life and the world a better place. And the Lysa said, this is what you should not do because it's destructive behavior. Yet, there has to be an acceptance of it by, at our own volition, at our own will, to the point that Purim has that quality even over Matan Torah. The revelation at Sinai. So you see clearly that maybe there were exceptions in the time of Chizki and other times where it was done in that fashion, but at the end of the day you want it to be embraced willingly. Means the kingship of God, the sovereignty of God, with our will should be accepted, not by force. 
And yet we don't say that Judaism is a democracy, we call it a theocracy. Because democracy implies everyone can do whatever they like. The Torah does not say that. The Torah says, here are the guidelines. And you are responsible and accountable to the God that created you to fulfill your mission. But you have to impose it upon yourself. And this has been general approach. Now, of course, there are times, listen, children growing up in a home, obviously the parents are going to be the one that write the rules. And they're going to, I'm talking about in a healthy situation, I don't mean abusive parents, they will encourage and sometimes discipline their children to follow what the Torah expects of them, which includes moral laws, includes also laws between human being and God. But the goal, ultimately, of a good education, is to educate the child according to his or her way, that the child should embrace it and make it their own. They should own it. And once they own it, then even when they get older, they will not waver from it. So internalization is key. As the Rebbe speaks very often about talk about you kindle the flames. You raise the flames, the, word, the verse says. Not just kindle. That the flame should rise on its own. And the Rebbe makes emphasis. That's the real goal of education and, and inspiration and influence. Not just to influence and impose it. You ignite, you light the flame, but you make sure the flame rises on its own. And you raise students that the students should stand on their own feet. In simple terminology, it means education is not just transferring data and knowledge, but it's teaching methodology. So it's one thing you teach a lot of information to your student. Another is to teach, and you give them the answers to all the questions you can possibly give. It's another is to teach them the methodology that even when they're not in the presence of the teacher, they know how to, an- how to answer questions. You don't just teach them, you don't just help them catch fish, you teach them how to fish, the how-to. And that's raising uh, the raising the flames to stand on their own. So in Judaism, it's a combination of getting very clear guidelines, and here's what you're supposed to be doing and what you're supposed to be avoiding, but at the same time, make it yours that it becomes internal and, and internalized. So forced observance, there are perhaps times like Chizkiah, there were other times where there were, it was necessary because whatever the circumstances were, but overall, the approach is always that it should be owned, it should be willingly accepted and embraced, especially in Chizkiah, with Tzadik Yichia, not that you rely on the tzaddik, but the tzaddik gives strength, but we stand on our own, as the Rebbe made very clearly, that you have to do the work with your own initiative. This doesn't mean you're not getting strength. You're getting strength even to do your own initiative. But there has to be the effort. The blessings come in your keli, the container you make. So you need to have your effort. That's very much part of the purpose of making a home of the divine, in the lowest of worlds, that we embrace it and it becomes ours, that you own it, that you understand it, you appreciate it. And the divine soul doesn't force it upon the animal soul, it persuades, it convinces, it educates, it inspires, it motivates, and shows that it's in your interest. And when you see it in your interest, then there's a whole different way of committing to it. The Rebbe once said, when you, if you learn chassidus and you do it because your never Shabbamis wants to, then you know you're going to stick with it because your animal soul is not going to be uh, is not going to resist. It enjoys it as well, and that's the ultimate goal. which means love God with all your heart. What's love Two bases. Should have said 
with both sides, both with your right side of your heart, the left side, both with Yetzir Tov and Yetzir Hara, that both should be embraced. And that comes through the effort of transforming, not just refraining. So we begin perhaps with this kafia discipline to avoid something, but the ultimate goal is you want to transform and transform yourself to accept it with your own will. That's a general approach. And obviously the more primizdika approach, because then it's not coming from above down, as Chizis claimed, but it's coming from the bottom up. And any hamshacha from above down may be a more powerful transmission, but when it comes from the bottom up, it may be weaker, but it's yours. As the Talmud says, a person desires one kav, one measure of their own effort, more than nine measures that are given to you as a gift. Because even though you can do more with nine than with one, but the one came yours, it's your, your effort, that value of quality of personalization, of integration, of internalization. Okay. Next question. The next question is, am I still a Lubavitcher if I learn Daf Yomi? Okay. A few months ago, a Daf Yomi share, Daf Yomi, of course, for those that may not know, is something that was instituted a number of years ago in the, end, in the middle of the, in the 20th century, early 20th century, um, whereby in, in Europe to divide the entire Talmud and each day learn one daf, yomi, that means daf, the page a day of the Talmud. And it's spread and become all over the world. You'll find daf yomi classes and uh, learning the Talmud, one chapter, one page each day, and many, many people, they continue with the same page, and then at the end, everybody makes a siyum, which is the end and conclusion. So here's the question. A few months ago, a daf yomi share, which was a class that was started in our Lubavitch community. Every morning, about 10 men got up to learn Daf Yomi at 5.30 every morning. I am one of them. Apparently, this share has become a source of mockery. I recently bumped into a local rabbi who asked me if I attend this Daf Yomi share. When I said yes, he asked me, what makes you a Lubavitcher? How are you any different than a Misnagid? And he told me the Rebbe didn't sit in jail so that you could learn Daf Yomi. So I'm asking, am I still a Lubavitcher now that I get up every morning to learn Daf Yomi, this Talmudic page a day? The truth is that I don't need you to answer this question. The answer is obvious. What I would like is if you could explain to certain shluchim and Chabad individuals that this kind of silly talk is, number one, not productive, and number two, not chesedish. I didn't engage with the shliach when he asked me these pointed questions. I simply moved on. And yes, I learned Rambam every day too. Okay. So, firstly, we have some sources on this matter from the Reb himself. Um, but I want to just begin with one general statement when it comes to things like this. Learning Torah is always a good thing. If someone's learning Torah, and whatever it may be, Dafyomi or another custom or another thing that was designated, the first thing is you always want to encourage someone from learning Torah. It would seem quite obvious that Alabavacher, Chassid, is follows Torah and Halacha and sees a Jew is learning. The first thing is to is to acknowledge that and to um, and to commend them for their commitment. They're learning. Mitzvah geredes. Mitzvah. Mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. Learning teir is learning teir. Yes, is it true that Daf was not established by the Rabbeim, like Chitas, established by the Friedrich Rebbe, Chumash Tilam Tanya, or the Rambam by the Rebbe? Right. It was not established by the Rabbeim. But to just mock and dismiss it is not at all appropriate. Now, if a person is only learning Daf is a Chabad Chosid, you encourage them also to learn Chitas and learn the Rambam. 
as this individual just acknowledged. So that's a general attitude. I don't think you need even sources for that. But since the topic is brought to the table, I decided I'll do a little research, and here's what I gathered. In no particular order, um, there is a sikh of a Shabbos Pasha Re'e, Tov Shemem Beis. The Rebbe was speaking then, he was asked a question about the siyum. It says in Sefer Chassidim, by Rabbi Huda Chassid, that you shouldn't make a siyum in public on Moyet Cotton. It's a chapter we actually, it's a tractate that's read primarily, it, it, it connects a lot of sad things in that chapter, including about Tisha B'Av. That's why we read it on Tisha We are allowed to learn it on Tisha B'Av. So not to make a siyum in public. So the Rebbe said, he, but the Rebbe said, uh, commented that was that. But the fact is you see in Ba'idin that they do make it. So even though it says that in Sefer Chassidim, we do it. So the Rebbe continued and said, I was asked a question. You see that people do it in uh, Dafiyemi. The Rebbe said, but Dafiyemi is not proof. Because Dafiyemi, they're learning more, not as an individual cha- uh, tractate. They're learning it part of the entire flow. And it was established by Gdeli Yisrael, by great Jewish leaders. And there's a schus rabim, there's a merit of many people learning it. That's expression in that sikhar amen base. There's a letter of blessing of the Rebbe on 11th of Nisan, Yudal of Nisan, Tov Ches, a group learning Daf Yem Yeshivas Or Al Khonan in Los Angeles, wrote to the Rebbe blessings for his birthday, and the Rebbe responds, and that's the title, the Shir, the, 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 the Kfutza, the people learning Daf Yemi. So there's nothing negative, the Rebbe would not write such a letter. Then there's an answer, the end of Tevis, Tavshin Chav Ches. That's like close to the end of 1967, maybe the beginning of 68. The Chabad rabbis in Montreal, about, they, were, they were describing in a duch, in a report to the Rebbe about the classes, which included, they said, including using the campaign, the worldwide campaign of learning. Dafyemi, they've also used it to draw attendees to their class, and they're learning the Gemara. It seems like they're learning the Dafyemi. And they asked the Rebbe, since the first Sima Shas is happening, which means concluding of the entire, tra- the entire uh, cycle, um, should they be involved in, in organizing a, for the city a public event? And the Rebbe wrote Kepashat, which means it's like an obvious, and said, thank you for, the, for all this information. It's appropriate time, and so on. And finally, I want to say, there's a Sikha Tov Ches, which this may be, some people may have taken to perhaps negate the idea. In Tov Shem Mem Ches, Tov Shem Lam, Shlach, Tov Shem Mem Ches, okay, that would be 1988. Um, so the Rebbe was speaking about the Parsha, uh, it, it was a continuation of the Fabrengen of Baal Eischa, where the Rebbe spoke about, talking about Baal Eischa, another connection, that when at the beginning of Baal Eischa, Rashi says, what's the connection, Lama Nismacha, the dedication, dedication offerings of all the leaders of the tribes is in Parsha Nasei, and it's followed by the commandment to Aaron that he should light the menorah. What's the connection? So it says, because when Aaron, Kayin Gadol, the high priest, saw that all the tribes were represented in bringing offerings to dedicate the temple, Chol Shadaita, he felt he, like, felt, he was felt crestfall. He was down by it, so to speak. Why? Because his tribe, Levi, was not represented. So the Hebrews just told him to light the menorah and shalchog deli mishalahem. Yours is even greater than theirs. So the Rebbe learned a lesson from that, that when you see something being done in public by many Jews, um, so that, um, that a person should feel bad that they're not part of something positive. So the someone asked the Rebbe questions, then why don't we have that same feeling about Daf Yemi? It's 
being done in public by many, many Jews from different, they're not, from different uh, communities and the backgrounds and so on. So the Rebbe said, we see that in the story itself. When did Aaron feel down? After he saw that all the tribes were represented. And he didn't, so that's when he felt chol meaning he felt somewhat weak. It means in spirit, he felt like, why am I missing out? But you don't find that one tribe fell down. Like, for example, once one tribe brought, they said, why didn't I can't bring that first day? Because every tribe had its day. That's not a problem. Every tribe had its day. It's when you saw all of them being done and Aaron was not participating, that's when Chal Shaddai So the Rebbe says, same with Dafyemi. When it was established, not all Gdeli Yisrael accepted it. Some actually did, did not accept it. For different reasons. And the Friedrich Rebbe did not instruct his students to do it. Some of the reasons is because in the Talmud it says, Yisrael learn Torah leprokim, which means to learn it the Prokim means to stop right in the middle, because when you finish a daf, you're learning it like you break off, even though the idea continues. Some because it says you should learn you should learn something you desire. And this is something that's more instituted. It's not necessarily where your heart desires. Um, especially yeshivas, the Rebbe says, that there were yeshivas where their koch, their real passion was either in nigla, in pilpul, or in bekiyas, different forms of learning or learning Musa and learning Chassidus, there was no room for extra shiurim. Whatever the reason, there were those that did not embrace this custom. Therefore, you can't call it a category that all the tribes did it, and therefore we should feel down. Because it could very well be that this goes into the category, and it, it definitely goes in the category of Nara, Nara, Pashta, which means different communities have different customs. So for sure, it's a valuable custom. And that's why you see some communities who may have even not accepted the custom initially of learning Dafyami later embraced it because it was more, now they felt the need that it would help their community. But to say that it was for yourself for everyone, and therefore you have to feel down, not because it could very well be. It's like for certain tribes and not for all tribes. Now, is, is this a negative? Yes, when you hear from a Rebbe, says Rambam, or Chitas, especially is your Rebbe. So Rebbe is coming the Takana that clearly means that your Rebbe. There's more than just it's a good practical thing to do. Does Yafiemi have the same authority like Chitas or Rambam? You could say it didn't come from a Rebbe, but that doesn't take away at all from the power of learning and the value of Schus Rabim. And you see it from all these different answers, and I'm sure there are more, that there's a power, but people are learning, thousands of people learning Gemara. And to open up the Gemara for so many for so many people who would not have learned, how could you say that's a negative? It has to be a positive. And therefore, in my view, continue learning and the more learning the better, and more one learning brings to the next learning. And I would never negate. What you do is you add, you increase. Okay. Next. Why is Taras Mishpacha so obsessed with details? The idea of Taras and Mishpacha really bothers me. Why is there such an obsession with women checking and worrying all day? I feel like men wear a gartel. A gartel is a, yes, to separate their mind from lower body. But because of Taras and Mishpacha, women are forced to think and worry and check all the time. I really don't appreciate it and wish there was another way. I, keep, I kept it for many years. I keep it for many years, but a lot of aspects of it really bothers me to no end, and it just gets harder as the years go by, and the more I think about it. 
There are way too many things that were added to make our life so difficult. I wish I saw the beauty and appreciated it, but no explanation I ever heard did it for me. Okay. The truth is, topics like this, especially around women's tires from Mishpacha, should be spoken from women to women. But since you bring it up, and I know the others have this question, I've been asked this question many times. So let me share a few thoughts on the matter, the best of my ability. And it's true, it hasn't been taught properly. That's the main tragedy here. Because remember, if we're talking here about God's laws, and God knows best what is best for us, why, would, why can't it be explained in a way that people understand and appreciate? So let's just talk for a moment about sexuality and intimacy in general. And I refer you to episodes as well as 59, 122, and 151, where I elaborated some more on this topic. One of the most regulated areas of a person's life, of a Jewish life, is the areas of Taras Mishpacha, the areas of sexuality. And you look at it, it's in detail. Now you wonder why. I mean, of course, there are other laws. Laws of Pesach are a nice competition as well in their detail. But this has even more extraordinary amount of attention. And the answer is very simple. Because it's the single most powerful force in life. Intimacy is the power to create life. There would be no life without it. It is connected to the deepest form of love between a husband and wife in a sanctified way. And they were one flesh, as the Torah says. Two halves of one whole, created in the divine image. God separated them. They come together. Is one of the most sacred, the most powerful things, maybe the most powerful. Because it's the unity of the divine being expressed in this world. So intimacy, therefore, has such profound pleasure, has such profound connection, more than anything in this world. That's why you see that it can create the greatest beautiful love and beautiful things in life, and it can create the most damage and jealousies and destruction. Only powerful things do that. The more powerful something is, the more powerful it could also be used in a negative way. Let's use the analogy of entering the Holy of Holies. There's nothing more sacred than entering the Kedush Kadoshim in the Beis Amikdash. And yet, nobody was allowed to enter. And when the high priest entered, it was only Bezeis Yahweh, only a certain time a year, Yom Kippur, for the while that he entered, a short period of time with all kinds of guidelines in detail, detail, seven days of preparing and going to the mikveh, the kohen gadol, the high priest, going in for Yom Kippur. And he went in bound by ropes or bound by chains because if there was one blemish, the place was so holy it couldn't tolerate one blemish. Think of an eyeball, a piece of dust on your finger is meaningless, but in the eyeball it's very irritating. So we cover, and the Holy of Holies is protected and covered. So you'd say, is it an ugly place? Why are we covering it? Why are we regulating it to such extremes? To such obsession? Because it's the holiest and you want to preserve its sanctity. You make sure you use it properly. That's why the laws of the Torah around Taras and Mishpacha are so detailed. It's not about the obsession with the detail. It's the power of the, what the power of it is. And every single blemish matters. Rahman al-Islam, God forbid, just to use an example. We have 75, 30, 40 to 75 trillion cells in the human body. If one cell is a mutation, it can create havoc and disaster and tragedy for everyone. A computer program can have millions and millions of lines of code. Add a dot or subtract a dot, and it won't work. Or even worse, it can create destruction as well. So why is, how is that possible? Because on that level... The minute matters. You'd say, one dot? Who cares? One dot? One cell among billions of cells? Trillions of cells? 
But when you're dealing with something of that magnitude and potency, every detail matters. This is what they should have taught us. That when you're dealing with intimacy and sexuality, you're dealing with an energy of Ein Sof itself. That's why it says the only way we can create, literally create, Ein Sof forever, which is children that bear children and bear children, is the Kayach Ein Sof that God implanted in us and as we access it through intimacy. So it makes total sense that going into the Holy of Holies, every detail matters, every specific detail. And when you look at it that way, then it's like love. It's like you're taking care of your child. You don't say, you know what, I'll only give the child some basic things, but I don't really care about the details. No, love is in the details. Every detail, how you diaper the child, how you caress the child, even a small little thing, you see how mothers lovingly will wipe off a little piece of dirt from a child's cheek. Why? Because when you love something, every detail matters. Unfortunately, we are often taught it in a very dogmatic and very impositional way. You must do this, and if you don't do this, you don't do that. All, all the fears and guilts and all the neurosis around it, it takes away the entire pleasure and takes away the entire beauty of it. But it's entering the Holy of Holies. And this is just a short version of what I could elaborate on more. I, dis- I discussed in those other episodes that I mentioned, but I think it's vital to look into it and see that see it that way, and you'll take a whole different take on these details that can be so troublesome when they're just seen as details that seem like meaningless. Who really cares? You do this, you do that. When in truth, it's the beauty of the, the intimate inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies, where every little detail counts, just like when you open up a body for surgery, you need to sterilize the entire environment. When the body is closed, so the skin, the hair catches bacteria, but when you're dealing with the most sensitive spots and the most vulnerable part of a human being, especially their sexuality, that is the place where every piece of dust matters. And that's how we have to think of it. And that preserves it, and, that, and that's the beauty of it. Okay. Next question. <laughs> this next question is, uh, takes the cake for sure. We're moving on from a serious topic here. This is the question. Cars. What kind of car should a chassid drive? Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. My question is about Hasidus and cars. What kind of car should a chassid drive? Why am I asking? My kids are all fascinated by cars. My oldest son just got his permit, and he talks with his friends about the type of car he wants, a Cadillac Escalade, Range Rover, and other similarly expensive cars. My younger kids also, when we drive, whenever they see a fancy and expensive car, they get excited. I know in some ways this is normal. On the other hand, I want to teach them Hasidic values. And my kids see in Crown Heights Jewish people driving some fancy cars. If someone can afford a fancy car, is it appropriate to buy one? Or perhaps buy a more modest vehicle and use the extra money for its tzedakah cause? I've heard this story, as, and as we know, if we hear a story, we should learn from it. If the Rebbe turning around and going back to his office when some chassidim bought him a new car. On the other hand, the Rebbe's car was a Cadillac, not a jalopy, so it was nicer than some other cars. Thank you for your time on this share, and may you be blessed to receive... The Torah, this was written clearly before Shavuos. Okay, it's always good to get a bracha. So I read it exactly as is. I don't even know where to begin, to be honest. I'm not going to suggest that in any memorium or sikhs there's any discussion about which car to buy. So let's talk about the general process, as a, starting with that story. Yes, when they bought the Rebbe a new car, he, not only did he turn back, he waited and waited till they brought the old car. There's even a video of it. The Rebbe said he doesn't need matonis. He's fine with what he had. Look, 
This is not just about cars, this is about all luxuries. We all know what Chassidus says, it says in the Sichas, by Chassid, that's what you're not allowed, you're not allowed. And even that which you're permitted, you also don't have to pursue. So the idea of having luxuries, just to have luxuries, we're not talking about a bettering necessary quality of life or something related to business, is moises. It's called moises, which means extras. And extras is something that we all want to avoid. So the general attitude to be obsessed with a car, the car you drive, and to look better, Yes, if you can afford a little better car, it's a better car in many ways, it's more comfortable and so on. We all know it's like having a comfortable home. But the obsession with cars, what car to drive, I'm not even going to give it to the, I don't think it's my role here to start talking which car to buy. It reminds me of a, of a wedding. It was a wealthy man who was making a wedding and he asked the Rebbe, he says he has the money, and should he make a wedding as a barchove? So the Rebbe wrote, Ashidas Beruchnius, and minimal begashmius should be wealthy in ruchnius and minimal in physical. And, and, he has, and he should be befasim this to others. This is the general attitude. Now, children get obsessed with all kinds of things, some with railroad trains and some with toys and some with cars. As adults, our role is to be role models and not to um, indulge them in this. Not you have to rebuke, but the key thing is to celebrate the pleasures of ruchnius dika things and the value of spiritual things, not the kind of car we have. Now, we all get excited. You bring home a new car, I understand. Not, we're all human beings. But I think the attitude here should be is not what kind of car a chassid should buy, but what kind of attitude a chassid should have when it comes to cars and other items. That these are part of the gifts and blessings God gave us in this world. Some are necessary for us to get around, but there are many chassidim that never, never even got a license. Again, I don't think that's a possible, but everybody can live up to that standard. But the idea is that you should see it as a vehicle. It's exactly what a car is, a vehicle to get you somewhere. So we're not going to use a horse or a donkey or a camel and so on. We're going to use a car. And there's nothing wrong with having a comfortable car. Fine. You can afford it. But to go out of your way to do something that's completely beyond, you know, just to show off, just to be luxurious, it's not the derech of chassidus. And that, in that sense... I would say is going to get a car that works for him. doesn't have to go overdo it, even if he has the money for it. And in addition, like the Rebbe says about weddings, also to create that type of jealousy that others who don't can't afford have to also now demonstrate that they also can live up to that standard. So that also should be taken into account when making such uh, calculations. Good. Okay, because of time limits, I'm not going to do the one about um, what can I do about... Um, yeah. Same gender attraction, we'll leave it for next week, which is perfectly fine with me. I will do a follow-up or two, and that is the follow-up on last week's episode. We talked, what can we do to help speed up Mashiach's coming? So one individual wrote, Rabbi, could it be possible that Mashiach is simply waiting for us to start the process towards peace? They are waiting until we truly deserve the revelation of God's wisdom on earth. I think de-escalation would be an ideal place to start looking for Mashiach in peace. P.S. I was raised Catholic, but I have a passion for Judaism among many faiths. Everyone is trying to preserve the good life. But Mashiach will help us adapt with a, with a divine force that is to move with Hashem rather than resist Him. I personally think Mashiach should focus on peace, education first. But de-escalation is critical for any attempts to make the hype of peace we need to bring people to the table. 
Only sustainable peace can yield a space for Hashem's glory. We've yet to see our worldly greatness with Hashem's light, this living force we share. I just thought interesting of different people that listen and share their thoughts on this matter. Another follow-up about the woman rabbi, which we discussed, I believe, in episode uh, 235 or 236. Thank you for all that you do in the community. In response to whether a person can daven at a shul in which there is a woman rabbi, I suggest that the next time you ask a rav, you must ask them for their sources. I have, the, I have discovered that there is a body of poskim, which means people who rule on Torah Allah, including Teisvis, the Chidah, the Sefer Achinuch, which say that a woman can paskin, can rule in halach. Additionally, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said that when it comes to serving as a pulpit rav, there's no longer an issue of shrara. Shrara means uh, leadership, like showing that you're like a leader over a community, ruling over a community. Keep in mind that the Rebbe said, what the Rebbe said to Rabbi Riskin. He said, our generation is different than that. It's very important that women be given the place and treatment that they deserve and facilitate as much as possible to participate in matters of Torah and mitzvahs in order to draw them close to matters of Yiddishkeit. And the approach today is that women learn even the oral law. Yes, there's no question that that's correct. But at the same time, as I discussed back then, it's important also to follow the halachas and not make a pirza, meaning not break any of the standards that we live up to. At the same time, this does not in any way negate the importance and the, and the dominant role of women in communities as leaders in their own right, in the way of in a modest way, but uh, as the Rebbe himself empowered. But at the same time, we want to make sure we follow Allah and not do anything to compromise Torah just because we think that we have to bend over backwards. There's plenty of ways to empower women and give them the right, the right, their rightful prominent role in the Jewish world, the Jewish community. Okay. One more, are there any other follow-ups? There are other follow-ups, but I'll leave that again for next week. Let's go to the Chassidus question, which is, how do we explain the existence of evil in face of an omnipresent, omnipresent good God? Hi, Rab Simon, how are you? My question for you today is as follows. The Rambam opens up his Mishnah Torah, with Yesedah Yesedahs Vamuda Chochmas, the foundation of foundations and the pillar of all wisdoms. Leida Shiyesha Motzirishan, to know that there is a first cause. Bumamsi Kol Nimtza, and he is the one that caused everything else to be created. And all that in existence come from this true reality, this true source. Basically, what the Rambam is saying, that all existence stems from Hashem's existence. Then we have the Pasuk and concept of Ein Eid Movade. There's nothing but Him. And we have the concept that Chassidus teaches us that the Ebershter is Etzimatev. That God is fundamental good. The essence of good. So my question is, how could it be explained that evil comes from the Ebershter, from God, when He is Etzimatev, when He is fundamentally good, and the essence of good? And also, we have the concept of Kayachapel Benifel, which means God invests his power and his strength in creating. He's not from a distance, but he's embedded within existence. We can identify the craftsman in the craftwork. So how can we see and evil? How can we see the craftsman's power in the evil that everything is created by God? And the world has plenty of it and still does, of evil that is. Thanks, Aslacharaba, Kabbalah, yeah. Okay. 
So firstly, I want, I want to say I discussed a related topic in episodes 54 and 231. I, mentioned, I decided to choose this topic because it somewhat connects to the beginning of this episode, which is about Hanukkah, light and darkness. It obviously requires a lot of discussion, a lot of discussion to reconcile evil in the face of a good God. So I'll just make a few key points, and I refer you to those episodes. I also refer you to the chapter on good and evil in Torah Meaningful Life, where I summed up the key points from Chassidus on this topic. Number one. Evil does not come from above. Evil is a human action. God does not create anything that's evil. The fact that there are things that we're not supposed to eat, for example, poisonous mushrooms or unkosher foods, or things we're not supposed to do, doesn't mean that that thing is evil. It means you are not supposed to touch it. It's also be there, same. So you, for example, there are things that you don't eat, but you're allowed to use for other purposes. Now, what does that mean specifically? It means the following. How does evil come to be? It comes to be because God concealed his presence. I mentioned the Tzimtzumarishan. The concealing of God's presence, the example being of a parent hiding from his or her son or child in order to elicit their ingenuity to find the parent. That concealment, its whole purpose, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, of this program, is in order for them to find the parent, the revelation. The concealment is for the revelation. But let's say the parent hides so well and the child looks Sunday and Monday and Tuesday as the Rebbe's classic, famous, powerful, emotional sikhen, tube shvat, tafshin lametes, and looks and looks and gives up. Because the, the, they hid so well, the parent hid so well, the child gives up. There you have the vacuum where the child can convince itself that God is not there anymore or God is so concealed it can't find. And then what happens when you feel independent and you don't feel God's presence, like in any vacuum where there's a void, negative things start happening. So you're able to then hurt another, do something you're not supposed to be doing. Because if you saw the light, if you saw, like a person, no healthy person would put their hand in fire because it's destructive. If a person puts their hand in fire, either they don't know it's fire, the fire is concealed, or they don't know the fire hurts them. How is it possible we can hurt each other when we're all really one? How is it possible for us to do something which is destructive to us? Because when the Torah says, do this, your machine called life will work better. Avoid doing this. Refrain from doing this because that will make your machine be destroyed if you do that. So everyone would follow instructions. You bring home a computer, you follow. This is what you do, this is what you don't do. So how is it possible? Because of the symptoms of the concealment. And since we are deceived into thinking that the concealment is an end in itself, and we don't see the force behind it, so then we can start wandering off and doing whatever we want, which ends up being destructive, simply because of our blindness. Absence of light. So the absence of light creates a possibility for something negative and evil to be done, either to yourself or to others or against God. And then when you do it, you actually create a negative thing. That's why in, in the Teir Shalom, the Rebbe Rashab says, evil, Ra, is Mitzis the Heder. It's a metzius of non metzius It's a metzius that doesn't exist. Not an illusion, it doesn't exist. Why? Because the whole purpose of it is not to do it. When you do it, you're actually making from something that should have been avoided a metzius. You're making something that was like a negative energy into an energy because you acted on it when it was really meant to be avoided. And that's possible because of this darkness. That's one of the ways that this is explained. So in the face of a good God, why is it possible? Because God concealed his presence 
And therefore, that allowed the environment and the breeding ground for negative things to happen. There's more to be said on the topic, but that is the connection to Hanukkah as well. And of course, the process of refining, the process of eliminating evil, Shvidos and Zui Shvidos means you break the evil. Why break? Because by breaking it, you actually repair it, because that's what it, its purpose was. Its purpose was you shouldn't do it, or you should avoid it, or when it's there, to eliminate it. So for example, a person hurts another person, the only way to redeem it is to stop hurting and to break the hurting, breaking the forces that led you to hurt another person to the point that you will eradicate it. And that is its actually redemption. That's its salvation. So there are things we do that bring light of the divine into the world, the goodness into the world, and the things that we avoid doing. Or if we did it, we break it, meaning we stop doing it and we repent and have remorse over it and we make amends, that, in a sense, elevates it back to where it should have been in the first place. Yeah. And reveals, of course, a greater strength. As we know, tshuva, like he says in chapter 7 in Tanya, because it brings you to a deeper place. So, even the crimes, even the misdemeanors, the deliberate ones, also become merits when you transform it. And you've eliminated and broken, literally broken and shattered its negative impact and, its negative, and, its, and its, the force of its actions. That no longer you're acting that way, you act the opposite way, so then you redeem its energy and you can harness and direct it towards positive ends. Okay. As I said, episodes 54 and 231, where I discussed this more. Let's do the three essays. Every week we do three essays. Essay number one is The Choice of Chassidus Yehuda Simcha Tenenbaum, age 20, Baltimore, Maryland, student in Baltimore, Yeshiva. So this essay, short and sweet, is like this. We live in a life of choices. We live a life of choices. This awareness of the power of choice we are given has helped me realize how prevalent the circumstances in which we find ourselves can be, leading me to be more aware of the responsibility and more specifically the privilege I've been given. We may often see things as unfair or think the rules weren't set properly and may want to just throw in the towel because we didn't ask to play the game. One of the many beautiful things Chassidus teaches is how everything we have and experience is a, we have and experience is a gift. Not only is there a purpose to every situation we are in, but we have the strength within us to create something beautiful. And once we see this special capability, we will also see the privilege we have and how much we can accomplish. Going on to explain this, based on a mimer from Rosh Hashanah, Tafri Samach from the Rebbe Rashab, using a moshal of a parable of a king. Very well done, very personal. Thank you so much for that. Okay, next essay. Next essay is Motivation Equals the Power of the Essence by Esther Stern, age 26, Brooklyn, New York, a teacher. So Esther writes, We all have a job. The high-class businessman, the mother caring for her children, the student learning in school. We all have our personal calling that takes up our time, energy, and mind space. But do we enjoy our occupation? We ought to like what we do, as the famous saying goes, choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. But not all of us are granted this gift and on the contrary are stuck in a place they detest for hours daily. Is there something they can do? Are all hopes lost? Can a person create within himself the motivation to wake up in the morning, energized to face the day? And it goes on to doing a nice, interesting case study of uh, searching people who don't enjoy what they do. And then based again on Maimer from the Rebbe Rashab and the the Rebbe, In the following essay, we will attempt to answer this question through bringing in a few excerpts from the talks and writings of the Rebbe Rashab and the Rebbe. And brings 
the sources are, let me just look up the sources. Hagos for the Mimer, Posach Eliyahu, Tafresh Ches, and as well as Lukut volume 18. Very in-depth and uh, very deep, I should say, um, essay, which applies those Mimerim to this topic of how to find that motivation in, your, in, your, in you in whatever you do, with a very good summary at the end, which I recommend reading. So this essay, as the previous essay, and the third one I'm going to read, summarize now, are all available at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, with the essays, or you can also receive them if you subscribe to our emails, and we send out all the essays as they're posted. So the essay number three is, Who is God? Ellie Sobel, age 43, Brooklyn, New York. Can a practical and personal meaning, can a practical and personally meaningful definition of God be found in Chassidus? To put this in the proper context, we can ask a more basic question. Is it beneficial to even search for such a definition of God? Should an essay on this topic be written? And goes on to look at the two sides of it. To know God. But on the other hand, we can never know fully God because His thoughts are not like our thoughts. And yet, we can find a way to balance the two. The third voice, as he calls it here. And does that very well in pointing out and explaining using different discourses of Chassidus of the combination of connecting to a God that's beyond us, but connecting. And this too is a very profound essay going into the actual ultimate God that is Mitzvah, built in Mitzvah, Nimtza, an unexistential existence, and yet we can ultimately connect to it, and which will be completely fulfilled when Mashiach comes. Well-resourced, well-annotated, and I commend you. Very good essay. Very good essay, yes. So with that, we conclude the essays. And then we now will sum up and say, everyone again, a happy and freilich and Hanukkah. May this one light tonight grow night to night, not just in number, but also in quality. Mylon Bekedish. We always increase in everything that is light Light is the soul, the soulful light of Ner Hashem Nishma Sodom. The soul of a human being is the light of God, the flame of God, the lamp of God. And Ner Mitzvah Vatera Er, growing in our mitzvahs, the light, the flame of the candle of mitzvah and the light of Torah, which is all symbolized by the light. And we listen to the flames. As the Friedrich Rebbe said, Medavzach Tzuherin was the Lichter Lichter Zell. The flames tell us a story. And they tell us a story of our, of our lives. And they tell us a story of growth. And they tell us a story of vanquishing the dark. And they tell us a story of eternity. And they tell us so many other details of the story which each of us has to apply to our personal lives. So may we learn from these flames, grow with them, and may light permeate all our lives, individually and collectively, both here at Tzisrael, wherever Jews may be. And the light should ultimately also permeate and illuminate the entire world transforming all forms of darkness and ultimately bringing it to the day when everything will be turned to light with the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. We're here every Sunday. My life is supplied. It's 8 to 9 p.m. Please send us your questions and your comments. Everyone have a Freil Chanukah.